You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. It's good to gather as the church this morning. We're going through the book of Acts. Uh, just verse by verse back in January, uh, we started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're in chapter 14 uh, here today. Reminder, two services only next week. Uh, y'all are going to be, 65% of y'all will be at the beach, so it just is what it is. Uh, so we're going to do uh, just two services. Uh, before I jump in, a couple things. One, I want to just give a shout out to all the graduating high school seniors. Uh, who just wrapped up this past week. Uh, we're going to honor you on the first Sunday in June here. Yeah, so we are excited for them. Uh, y'all are going to look good in that Leon red cap and gown, so I'm excited for you. And there's others too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but, but we're going to honor you the first Sunday in June, bring up before the church, pray for you. We're just really excited for what God has in store for your lives. And uh, for you teachers out there, three more days than summer. Where's our teachers at? Three more days. Hang in there. Okay, here we go. Three more days. And then I also just want to be mindful of the fact that Tim Keller, a pastor and author from New York, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, passed away this week after a long battle with cancer. And uh, he is someone who's had a tremendous impact on many believers, especially pastors. Uh, he is someone that many pastors in my generation especially kind of consider our pastor in terms of just the influence through his writings and teachings. Uh, if you don't know who that is, I'd love for you just to look up his name on Amazon, uh, Tim Keller, and any of his like a million books, like you can, any of them, whatever one sounds most appealing to you, uh, to grab it and read it. Uh, just the fact that he would, that he stood for the gospel without compromise and also loved people and loved the city of New York and wanted to see churches planted all over the world, uh, is he's, just been, he's been quite a figure. And uh, if we're like Instagram follow friends or whatever, you probably see me post eight million things about Tim Keller in the past three days, so uh, sorry, he's the best. So I just wanted to just acknowledge that we're mindful today uh, of his church in New York, our brothers and sisters up there at Redeemer, and uh, we want to pray for them as well as, uh, as they're going through uh, that, their first Sunday uh, without, uh, without, with, with, with the news of Keller. So I'm going to pray for us, then we'll jump into Acts chapter 14. Our Father, we are so thankful for your love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, that you revealed your love for us, and that Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I ask that we'll be convinced of that truth because Jesus has risen from the grave. We're grateful to have our Bibles, that we have the scriptures. We, you did not leave us here to wonder uh, that you have told us exactly what it is you want us to know about you and about our lives through our Bibles. So I ask we'll be good stewards of that today. We lift up Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and the many churches planted through that church. We just ask you to be with them today. We are thankful for the ministry uh, Lord of Tim Keller, and we give you the glory for that and how you've used him in many people's lives. I ask that his books and his teachings will continue and that the many lessons he taught many of how to stand for Christ in a difficult world uh, will be true for us all. We ask you all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today, Lord, may the gospel go forward in every community. We know we're not the only ones doing this. Uh, they'll go f- forward in every pulpit in this community that people will understand and hear the good news and respond to it by wanting to live lives that honor Jesus. I also pray for those in our church who are hurting today. Lord, we just ask that they know that you are near, that you are with them always. Even when we don't feel it, you are with us. What an amazing truth to comprehend. I ask that will be understood and felt uh, today by those in our church family. And for our graduating high school seniors, Lord, we just ask for your hand upon their lives, that you guide and direct them and use them for your mission and for your glory. Uh, We're thankful to be here, and we're thankful for all this in the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So what's happening in Acts 14 now is the disciples are just completing their first missionary journey. We talked about last week, I went on intentional mission trips now before persecution had scattered them. Uh, so they're getting scattered and they're in cities after they're getting scattered and going, well, there's people here who need to know about Jesus, so we're going to tell them about Jesus. But now they're being very intentional. They're being strategic. They're mapping out places where they want to go uh, to make the good news known. Uh, so we're told in Acts chapter 14, they're now in a place called Iconium. 
Uh, before we jump in there, it's important to know that this idea of a missionary life, of intentional mission, that is the posture of the Christian. Like every single Christian is supposed to view their faith that way. That does not mean that every Christian is called to go to a third world country and live their lives. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean that the posture of our lives, the posture of our hearts is to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could say it's simply what we do. There's more to being a Christian than being a missionary. There's definitely not less of it. Every time you get into your car and back out of your driveway, I know you guys, the truck, you back in the parking lots, you drive forward. I don't want to forget about you. Of any time you leave your driveway, you are going on a mission trip. When you walk into your home, you are going on a mission trip. God wants to use you for his mission and for his glory and to remind you the reason you became a Christian is God used someone to tell you the good news. If it was grandma or an FCA leader or a youth pastor, like whoever, a good friend, a college roommate, you're a believer because God in his grace allowed someone to open their mouth and tell you about Christ. So we want to go and do the same thing. Why? Not because we have somebody who we think is a project or a notch on our belt or have some side agenda, but because we believe it to be true. We actually believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave and that he wasn't exaggerating or playing on words or giving a figure of speech when he said that he's the way, the truth, the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So our posture is a missions posture. You see churches all around the world that have died that used to be vibrant 100 years ago, even 25 years ago and now are museums or they were sold to be an apartment complex and demolished. You can see remnants of a plaque at once this historic church stood here and it's not that they relocated. It doesn't even exist anymore. I'm sure there's many factors, but one of them certainly is that they lost a missional focus. As the culture around them got more secular, the church became more insular. Kind of a holy huddle kind of idea. And it's important that the church leadership, the members of the church, continue to believe that the reason that we come together here is to be sent out there as carriers of this good news, because every single church is one generation away from dying if they don't get on mission. That is a fact. And we pray regularly. That's why we're doing our let's go. That's why we take next generation ministry so seriously here, is we don't want our watch it to ever be said, there's a generation who grew up that was unable to hear the gospel in Tallahassee and beyond. Acts chapter 14, let's jump in. That's my little rant. So verse one, in Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual, as usual meaning they would go to the Jews, the Jews who had been promised this Messiah for generations and generations. They were telling them that he has come and his name is Jesus. And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They're not telling us they believed because the disciples were savvy or they were creative. Even though it's okay to be creative, it's okay to be savvy, but because of their message. Because they spoke about Jesus that he had resurrected, that he was the promised Messiah. And what happened? Jews and Greeks believed. But there's always opposition. There was then and there is now. But the unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus, who rejected this message, they stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. Now when you hear signs and wonders, I can understand where it might kind of freak you out or go, oh my word, that's kind of strange, what are we doing here, a kind of idea. But why, why this was taking place was it was God was allowing the disciples uh, to perform different miracles because it was validating the message. The Bible had not been completed yet. The New Testament letters were actually being written as this all is taking place. 
So to verify and validate, they weren't just some religion come lately, but they actually were carrying the words of God, that God was with them. God and his power allowed them to see some miraculous things happen. That does not mean it's going to happen today or happen tomorrow, but that God was allowing this to take place. Can it? Of course it can. I know we're going to tell God what he can and can't do, but it's really descriptive for the time with a message being validated. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. So those who sided with the Jews would say, we do not believe he's the Messiah. Those who were siding with the apostles were saying, he actually is the one he claimed to be. We want to follow Jesus. So an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. They found out about it and fled to the Laconian towns of Lystra and Derby and the surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. And by the gospel, meaning the good news of what Jesus had come to do for sinners through his death and resurrection. So here are these people, they're investing their lives in this place. They're staying for a while alongside significant persecution. That they chose in the hostility to stick around for a while. And what are the things that are happening? We're told they were poisoning the minds of others towards the believers. And we see that happen all the time today. One of the great strategies of the enemy is to poison our minds, to fill our minds with doubt, to fill our minds with skepticism towards fellow Christians, uh, where it's very commonplace nowadays to not trust Christian leadership, uh, because maybe one thing happened bad at a church you heard about online, or 10 things happened across the country, so the assumption is to never assume the best about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just poisoning the mind, and the chatter starts, and you listen and you receive it, or you read something online, just poisoning our minds, rather than being united as a church, it's so easy for churches to be divided because we listen to alternative whispering and messaging around us. We've got to be careful that we do not give in to the strategy of the devil and allow him to poison our mind away from the truth, away from the church. But then they decided it was time to leave. So they go 26 miles about to Lystra. And we see this take place, that in Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet and had never walked and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowd to offer sacrifice. Now imagine being Paul and Barnabas here. They just see God do this miraculous work. They're proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And rather than people turning to Christ, they run in and go, you are gods. And they start to worship them. And you can see Paul and Barnabas going, no, 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 no. Whoa, whoa, like, that's, you're missing, we are not those things. Well, I want to give these guys a little bit of slack, kind of a little bit of slack, these people in Lystra, because they were responding and overreacting to an ancient historical legend in their community. There's an ancient legend that Zeus and Hermes, who they called Barnabas and Paul, at once, at one time, had come to the hill country. We're told that it was Lystra in the surrounding countryside, and they came disguised as like mere mortals, and they were wanting a place to stay. So in Greek mythology, this is one of the ancient stories. They asked a thousand homes in the community if they could stay with them, offer hospitality, and nobody said yes. So eventually this poor elderly couple 
and a very tiny cottage, welcomed them and fed them. So the gods, as a response to that, Zeus and Hermes, they transformed their small, very kind of unimpressive cottage into a temple and made the couple the priests of the temple, which was their request. So when the couple died, they were immortalized as an oak tree. The homes that hadn't been hospitable were destroyed. So any of those 1,000 houses that said no were demolished. So basically, these people are freaking out because they didn't want to make the same mistake as their ancestors and reject the two gods who had come into the area. So they're going, let's just bow down to them and bring them whatever they need and be hospitable and welcome them into our city. So here's this amazing moment. They see Paul and Barnabas used by God to heal the man who couldn't walk, to point people to Christ was the reason. Their great little moment was all messed up now. So here's what they say, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, they tore their robes. When they heard this, they rushed into the crowd, shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people also, as if we put our shoes on the same way you do, just like you, and we're proclaiming good news to you. Like, we're not proclaiming those gods, we're proclaiming the God. It's important that we never exalt the messenger and always exalt the message. We don't exalt the messenger, we exalt the message. The ones who give the message need the daily grace of God and forgiveness as much as those hearing the message. Because as Paul says, just mere men. Flawed people who are totally dependent upon the grace of God. One of the best things about being a pastor in my hometown, I grew up here in Tallahassee, is that I don't have to like pretend and put on some kind of like holy vibe. You know, like I don't have to go into like preacher mode or anything like that because no one would buy it <laughs> who I grew up with, because they know I'm flawed. They know I'm not perfect. I, I get asked sometimes when I speak somewhere, they'll say, what's it like being a pastor in your hometown, which is kind of unique, I guess. And I say, well, it's kind of interesting. There are people who will only go to City Church because I'm the pastor, because they trust me, and we grew up together, and, and they know I actually do believe this stuff, even though I'm a flawed person, and we just connect and know each other. And there are people who will never go to this church because I'm the pastor, and I'll like, kiss their girlfriend in seventh grade on the playground, or the back, or, or the racquetball court, something like that. So it just kind of is what it is. But you don't have to pretend that you're anything other than what you are, which is somebody who really does believe this stuff. I hope everybody knows that about me, they believe this stuff, but also that I need it as much as anybody. As much, if not worse, than anybody. We're dependent upon the Lord. So they stop him and go, stop, please, no, you're ruining, you're not getting it at all. He says, we're proclaiming good news to you, that you turn from these worthless things. He's not afraid to call a spade a spade. One of the great things about Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, a very secular place, was he was never afraid to say, this is who Jesus is. And the response was, well, if Tim can do that faithfully in New York, why can't we do it everywhere else? He says, these are worthless things. Why are they worthless? Because one, they're not real. They're false gods, but second, they perish. They're not alive. They're stones. They're statues. They're in ancient history. And how does he compare it? Turn from those worthless things to the actual living God. Jesus Christ, who is alive right now. You hear people say sometimes things like, well, if Jesus was alive today, he would be so frustrated. He is alive today. He is alive right now. The Bible tells us he intercedes for us, and one day we'll return for his people to make all things new. He's the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, 
He allowed all the nations to go their own way. They didn't have a specific word of revelation as in the scriptures at that time from God. He goes, but we still could know about him. So he did not leave himself without a witness. There were prophets speaking about him, but there's more. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. As in there's things that God has done that show you that he exists. That he has already been good to you whether you realize it or not. So even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. So they're still not getting it and wanting to worship Zeus and Hermes reincarnated as they think. Rather than the living God who Paul and Barnabas aren't claiming to be, they're pointing to the one who is. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, how easy is that to happen? That a false message and secularism wins over the crowds. They largely do it today through social media. It's called peer, and there's also this classic peer pressure. Back when we were growing up, peer pressure meant like they tried to get you to smoke this and drink this, basically. Now peer pressure, they want you to affirm this and deny this. And if you don't do these things, then you're unloving, you're whatever word they want to use. They try to win over the crowds. This causes Christians to do things that no one in generations before us, the believers, have ever in a million years considered doing like putting pronouns in their social media bio. Are you kidding me? What's well, a loving thing to do? It's loving to present a false reality to people? Really? You know what's happening there? We believe we're being loving, and I do want to give the benefit of the doubt, and I think you really do believe that. You've been won over by the crowds. We must turn from that and turn to the living God and not give in not give in on the foolishness of this world. So what they do, they stone Paul. They drag him out of the city thinking he was dead. Here's a guy they just saw heal someone who they had known could not walk from birth. And he rejects their gods as worthless, proclaims the one true God as the one who is living and alive and real and made all things. And what do they do? They drag him out and stone him to the point where they thought he was dead. What does that tell us? People get very sensitive and defensive and do irrational things when you go after their idols. When you go after their idols. Especially those that we cloak in royal robes and declare to be, without using the words, declare to be a functional God. Just ask a question. Just question Fauci. See what happens. Trump see what happens. Obama, see what happens. Your parenting, see what happens. Rather than, oh, hey, yeah, we're struggling just like anybody else. You've seen something in our parenting you think could improve? Maybe the way that we're trying to lead our kids as Christians is not ideal. There's no space in Christianity right now for those conversations because we're so sensitive about our idols. I mean, you touch an idol and the riot figuratively begins and the stones are picked up and they're thrown and they'll leave you to dead. That's not of ancient past in Lystra. It's here today. May we humble ourselves and believe since our identity is in Christ that it's okay if other idols around us shatter because they're not God. 
when I love God the way I'm supposed to love God, then I'm going to be able to parent the way I'm supposed to parent. Then I'm going to vote the way that a Christian should vote. Then I'm going to respond to an election, not by trying to find a safe space and denouncing everybody on social media who disagrees with me, but trust the sovereign God that all things really are in his hands. So after the disciples gathered around him, he got up, wounded, beaten, bloody, surely, and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby on the way to Antioch, and they could meet up with the other believers. So here's Paul, who denounces the idols of the city while also not just judging them or rejecting them. He's giving them something better. Christianity is not, oh, you're wrong. It's, hey, that's not God. Here's who is. Like, let me show you who is right. Let me show you the truth. And you might go, well, who are you to say who's right and who's wrong? And I get that question, and I want to be sympathetic towards it. The issue is, though, has Jesus rose from the grave or not? Like, is Easter real or not? Was, like, your new lily dress and pictures in the front yard before ham at Nana's worth it or not? Like, is it real? If he has resurrected, then everything he says must be accepted by me. If he hasn't, you do you. He's a Christianity, helps you feel a little void, nice little crutch to walk on when something goes bad. Great. Hope it's helpful. That doesn't work. Try something else in a few weeks. And when in doubt, there's always yoga. Now you can even do yoga with goats. So go for it. But if he has risen from the grave, then it's never out of bounds to say that this is true and this is false. That he is the living God. And Zeus and Hermes are not God. And Paul shows back up in the city. And I'm sure, I'm not reading into it, he was bloody and bruised and weary and weak. They left him dead, they thought. But what an inspiration it must have been those, to those believers that saw him return and saw him continuing the message. I can imagine they're going, wow, we heard about his story, that he was on the Damascus Road and that the risen Lord appeared to him and saved him from his sins and called him to the mission field, and he believed the good news of the gospel, and we were a little skeptical about it, you know, it sounded a little too good to be true. This is the guy who used to order the murder of Christians and participate in martyrdom towards Christians. And now he's a Christian, it's like, mm. But he comes back, bloody and beaten, after proclaiming the living God. You can imagine those believers going, this is true. This is worth it. I am with him. It happens today, too, when you show up and your life has been changed. All of a sudden, people see that your Christianity is different than it used to be. You've actually given your life to Christ in a cultural, we live in a, a town full of a lot of cultural Christianity. And what I mean by that is, if you ask someone if they're a Christian, they would tell you yes. And their reason is, maybe they're just not atheists. They like believe in God. They'll tell you they're a really good person. They come from a Christian family. You know, they're familiar with church language. You know, like, like you, know, you know, don't cuss in front of kids. Like, like what if they, like that, those kind of point to those kind of things. Like, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, of course I'm a Christian. All right, great. I'm not the judge who's a Christian, nor do I want to be, but the Bible is. So I'm just curious. Like, what makes you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a good person, believe in God. Try to be sincere, try to work hard. Notice what was not mentioned in that answer. Jesus. Like, we live in a time and in a place and in an era where you can claim to be a Christian and have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. 
what I'm telling you is that's not Christianity at all. And it's easy to live in that because a Christianity that's never pressed, never challenged, never uncomfortable, never interferes with anything. So if you're raised in a cultural Christian home, when you actually hear the good news of the gospel and actually give your life to Jesus, your family, when you tell them about it, they think you like joined a cult. They really do. And they get really defensive because like, what are you trying to say, that we didn't raise you right? We didn't raise you in a Christian home? I'm like, well, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is I believe this to be true about Jesus. And when they see that it actually matters for your decision making, that you really do believe he's Lord, then people start to realize and go, wait a second, maybe I need this Jesus too. So here's Paul. Listen to this faith. This is Paul writing to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy. Now one of the neat things about studying Acts like we've been doing is you can see in the rest of the New Testament letters how these are all tied together. They're all happening regularly at the same time. It all tells the same story. So here's what Paul says. He says, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the exact things we're just reading about. Here's Paul in writing to Timothy reflecting on what happened to him in the cities and acts that we're talking about. And he says, what persecutions I endured, stoned almost to death, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, and he's writing to Timothy so Timothy can teach others in the church. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to look different in different eras and different times, but he guarantees us it will happen. But when you live a Christian life that isn't really about Jesus, it's probably not going to happen because it's probably not a faith that's grounded in the gospel at all. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, and this next verse in verse 14 might be my most important role as a pastor, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. The job is to stand up here every week and encourage and remind you not to cave. That Jesus really is the one he claimed to be. Why would Paul keep going after he was almost killed? Because he knew it was true, which meant it was worth it. And not because he was brainwashed in the third or fourth generation, but because the resurrected Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road. He was blind, and now he can see. Because you know those who taught you. So starting to see the next generation of Christians here. You know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the point of the scriptures. Then he wants to assure them that all scripture, all of it, is inspired by God, and it's profitable, it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, there's times for that, for correcting, there's times for that, and for training in righteousness. But why? So you can just have head knowledge, so we can correct other people and tell them they're not as spiritual as us? No. So the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, so you're ready for the daily battle of what it means to follow Jesus in this world. I don't mean the battle against other people. The Bible says our war is not against flesh and blood. Other people are not the enemy. But against the spiritual realms. 
Hey, you know who the greatest enemy most likely is? Me, you, is it yourself? Because again, they're poisoning our minds. You just do you, whatever makes you happy. You follow your hearts. The Christian story is that our hearts are not trustworthy, so we trust in Jesus to give us a new heart instead. Jesus said this, the world hates you. Now remember, these are the, the people who receive these words from Christ are now the ones going and taking this message forward. And then the next generation that, that they have taught. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. I think we forget sometimes how hated Jesus really was. I mean, it took him to his death. I think we just kind of see him as this guy who just sort of walks around and high-fives everybody, hands out lollipops, you know, bless you, bless you, you know, that kind of thing. Why was he hated? Not because of how he treated people. He's the only one who's ever existed who treated people perfectly 100% of the time. There's no sin ever in him. He never sinned. That means he never had the wrong motive. He never acted out of the wrong posture. Like, he's the only one to ever treat everyone perfectly yet they still hated him. Here is Paul and Barnabas in the city doing social justice, helping people, and they still stoned him. Why? Because they hate the message. Because they hate the message. These are not gods, he is. He said, if you were of the world, and that's the point, the world would love you as its own. The reason why the world doesn't love you is is you're not of it. Because you're not of the world, I have chosen you out of it. I've chosen you out of it. I've taken you from it to a new world. But you still live here purposefully for his mission, for his glory. The world hates you. So here's what Jesus did perfectly as a perfect Messiah. When the world hated him, he never hated them back. What a challenge for us that we pray regularly and ask God to do a work in our hearts that we never hate back. That we're not shocked when it comes our way because Jesus said if it hated him, it's gonna, they're going to hate us. Paul's letting someone walk again by God's grace and they still stoned him. Like what a challenge. Like what a work of discipleship in the heart that we refuse to hate back a world that hates us that we love them because Christ loved us. And here's the thing, we were part of the hating Jesus too. Even if we didn't realize it. Because we were saying, God, not you, but what I want. That was the human problem, the human of idol- the problem of idolatry, of false worship, of us rejecting the things of God. But thankfully, God, who is rich in mercy, has forgiven us and has created a people for himself. So now the challenge is that we refuse to hate back a world that hates us. I think Tim Keller is an amazing example of that. Again, just a man. He'd reject all the praise that's going towards him. But if you want to just read about the stories through his books about a man who just modeled that, never compromised, had darts. You read on social media, you think that everyone in the world loves him equally. That's not true. He had darts all the time, from the right, from the left. I mean, so many darts at him regularly. Refused to hate back. I'm not saying he never had moments. He's a human. But if we can learn anything from this story, the disciples kept going and kept proclaiming despite the opposition. So one of the questions is, because they left after this, they took off. At first they had invested there, then they left. And the question is, well, when do you stay and when do you go? 
Like, when do you stay and when do you go? How, how do you know when it's time to end that conversation? Like, when do you stay in the hard job? And by hard, I mean, like, spiritually. Like, when do you stay at that school? When do you stay in that sorority? Like, like when do you stay in that conversation, in that dialogue, in that debate, in that exchange, in that social media back and forth? When do you stay, when do you go? Now, John Calvin, talking about Acts 14, says this, and though they fly, lest they throw themselves headlong into death, yet their constancy in preaching the gospel does sufficiently declare that they feared not danger. They didn't back away from the message. For Luke says, Luke wrote Acts, that they preach the gospel in other places also. They go to the next town, preach again. This is the right kind of fear. When the servants of Christ do not run willfully into the hands of their enemies, of them to be murdered, and yet they do not abandon their duty, neither does fear hinder them from obeying God when he calls, and so consequently they can afford, if need to be, to go even through death itself to do their duty. That's from John Calvin in his commentary on Acts. In other words, to put it in simple terms, I'm a simple guy, we take the course of action that will best serve the mission. Sometimes the best thing for the mission is to stay in that conversation. It's to stay in that sorority. It's to stay in that mom group. It's to stay on that team. It's to stay a part of that conversation. Other times it's better for the mission to remove yourself from it and to take it somewhere else. And you need to trust your conscience and you and the Lord to determine those type of things. Paul repeatedly encounters persecution, but he also moves on when necessary, but never ever abandons the mission because you can carry out the mission of God anywhere. So then he stays in Antioch for a little while and most people believe, it's pretty much, I think, pretty much concluded that while he was there, he wrote the letter to to the Church of Galatians that gives us the book of Galatians. Sorry. He wrote the letter to the Galatians that gives us the book of Galatians. That's a tongue twister. So here's the bloody and bruised and beaten Paul sitting down in Antioch and taking out his pen and writing one of the greatest descriptions of the gospel of Jesus Christ you could ever possibly imagine called the book of Galatians. When he said, it's not by being circumcised you're saved, it's by the blood of Jesus you're saved. Don't compromise the gospel. If righteousness can be obtained by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. Chapter 5, love, joy, kindness, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Live these things. Walk in the Spirit. Don't hate back when the world hates you. Live differently. Why? Because we believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. In other words, all this is worth it. Those graduating from high school... So many Christians leave high school and go to college for their faith to die. Refuse to let it die because Jesus has risen from the grave and it's worth it. It's worth it. No one, no one, 30 years from now, will care how cool you were in high school. No one. I was extremely cool in high school for the record, sorry, but actually not really. No one's going to care. No one's going to care what parties you're invited to in college or what you said in a classroom and how you were conformed. And there's so many things. What I'm concerned about is that you build your life on things that matter. You're going to have moments. I'm not going to be some, just not pulling a gavel and telling you, do this, do that. Just saying, don't abandon your faith. The good news is when we do, God's very quick to pick us back up. 
So let's put our hope in the one who loved us first when we were unlovable and continues to love us even when we fail. And then we see what happens afterwards as I land the plane here. They then go and they start more churches. And they establish leadership in those churches because religion is organized in the Bible. You know, it's trendy to say. Usually it's like some like 45-year-old man that claims to be a Christian but it's like doesn't want to go to church. And he'll say things like, well, I just don't believe in organized religion. Well, the religion in the Bible was organized. Just want to let you know. And they're told that they reported everything to the disciples and the rest, they just reported all the good news what God was doing through the church. And they spent a considerable time, verse 28, with the disciples. They're encouraging them, we're told, about all the things that were happening with the Gentiles, how they had come to faith in Christ. That's why, we, as, that's why we celebrate things like, we had over 80, we've had over 80 people baptized in our church since November. It's hard out there, but you know what? It's worth it, because God's doing a work through the church. So let's be convinced of the gospel. Let's say no to cultural Christianity. And let's lift up Jesus everywhere we go. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are unworthy of it. You're the one who is worthy, but you and your love has made the way back to you through a reconciled relationship clear to us through Jesus. So as our hope will be in the resurrection of Christ, Lord, I ask for your forgiveness how we are so easily manipulated by the world, myself included. Let us care about what you say and what you think. Lord, our identity's already been established for us. We don't have to go search and find it. It's been established in Christ. So let us work from that, knowing that we are right with you, that you love us, that our position with you is secure, and you'll never leave us or forsake us. God, we ask for a faith that is legit and that is real and that withstands the pressures of this world and that is convinced the resurrection of Jesus. In his great name we ask all this. Amen.